Welcome to the Stefan Levira Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. And my guest today is Udi Wertheimer. Welcome, Udi. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I've seen a lot of your stuff on Twitter, and uh, guys, Udi is well known on Twitter as as a you know Bitcoin developer, but also quite good at uh, debating against, let's say, uh, what we might call the unnecessary token tokenistas and the ICO scammers of the world. So I thought it would be um, so you know I thought it would be good to get him on and talk about some of his experience. Um, but yeah, let's start with a bit of your background in Bitcoin and what sort of projects have you been working on? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, I, I guess I, I first got into Bitcoin as a sort of a hobby in, or I don't know, around 2013, 2014. Um, and it's the, it's the usual story of, you know, hearing about Bitcoin, getting a lot of sleepless nights reading about it and going crazy about it. Um, and at some point, I think it was 2015, um, I joined Kolu, which is an Israeli company, um, that used to maintain, uh, the colored coins protocol of, uh, that, that was used on, on top of Bitcoin for sort of tokens back then. Um, it, it was much less popular than ERC20 of Ethereum is today, but it was the same basic idea. Um. I, I don't think we thought about it as a as something for ICOs, but maybe for I don't know securities and 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 tickets for shows and things like that. So we actually spent a lot of time pretty early on thinking of use cases of this stuff, and we were never too sure about them. I mean, we were getting less and less sure about them, I guess. Um, but eventually, you know, Ethereum kicked off and, and had a lot of success with these ICOs. Um, and, you know, after Kolu, I think I stayed there until two, about a year ago. So, yeah, I was there about until about a year ago. Um, and from then on, I'm basically, you know, I'm trying to help and consult clients to work with Bitcoin and optimize for its you know, internals, which are sometimes kind of a mystery for people. Um, you know, you can see a lot of projects and, you know, businesses using Bitcoin in a way that's not essentially the most efficient. So, <clears throat> so there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff to talk about there. And also, you know, what's coming up in Bitcoin, right? What's, what's, what's next? Like obviously lightning and privacy technologies and things like that. So <clears throat> that's what I've been doing mostly for the past year or so. Um, nice, yeah. Nice. Okay, so let's start with some of the stuff around some of the quote-unquote unnecessary, well, not really quote, but just unnecessary tokens. I think there has been a bit of a tendency for people to insert or interpose unnecessary tokens. One example recently uh, that there was a bit of back and forward and debate was around the BAT, the Brave browser and the that uh, attention token do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened in that particular exchange yeah so um first off you know i want to say that brave itself the web browser i think it's great um i i even sometimes recommend it to people as you know as a an easy way to get quickly set up with a browser that would block all the unwanted stuff so as a browser it's a pretty good product it's not bad um and it started off as, you know, just 
this browser by a small seed funded company. Um, and they had this idea that they're going to use Bitcoin to basically allow users pay publishers in exchange for not seeing ads. So you have a publisher like uh, New York Times and they show you ads and you don't want to see them because they track you or whatever. So instead, you just pay them. Um, and, you know, they tried that for a while and they, they had a lot of problems with that. Some of the problems were related to how, you know, Bitcoin payments are slow and they're not immediate and they're sometimes expensive. But I think that there's another part of the story. Another problem that they had is a product use case problem, which is that most people did not want to pay for websites. Um, and it was, you know, it's the, the chicken and egg problem. It's a small browser, browser with, with a small user base. And it's difficult to, to convince publisher to, to get on board. They actually got very angry um, in the beginning. They, there were a few big publishers who got together and made this message that they're very opposed to what Brave is trying to do. Um, and on the other hand, you have users joining in and you tell them, you know, you should pay, but they have no one to pay to. So it's the classic chicken and egg problem. And I, I don't think they ever really hit the, the scaling ceiling of Bitcoin, right? So, mm. <laughs> so that's one thing, but then the ICO craze started and they had this idea that they're going to sell this token. Um, and the idea with the token is, you know, you hear a lot of stories with tokens, but usually what it comes down to really is that since I have my own tokens and I can, I essentially can print how many of them that I want, or I, you know, I printed a lot of them in the beginning, then now I can give them away. I don't care about them. I can just give them away. And one thing specifically that the brave founder repeatedly says is that they couldn't use bitcoin because if they no one would give them bitcoins to give away right you wouldn't give them bitcoins mm. so they could give their users uh, which is you know that's true um but <coughs> they're, they're not you know they're not giving any real actual value they're giving tokens that they basically made up and an interesting thing about that is that Actually, you know, people pay, I think, about $30 million in Ethers, which is another cryptocurrency. And, you know, they're not giving those Ethers away either, right? Because they want them because they they have real value. So they're giving away this token that they made up. And it seems, you know, during a bubble, once while while all the all the coins go up in value, it seems like you're actually giving users something of value, but at at times like this, when the markets are very slow um, and bearish, you can you actually when you're giving away free BAT tokens, what you're doing is you're taking money out of the secondary market. So you have traders trading BAT, and all of a sudden someone gets a load of free BAT coins, and they immediately unload that on on the market. So the market pays the price. It doesn't come from anyone else. It comes from traders traders who are actively trading BAT. So someone is paying for it. It's not free. They're just maybe not realizing mm. they're paying for it. Maybe some of them, you know, figure that it makes sense to pay for it and that it's still a good deal. Um, but it seems like it's no longer a very good deal, right? So mm. economically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. 
and and then there's the whole technical part, right? Um, you know, they're saying if I use BAT because it's on top of Ethereum, it's just more scalable and it's easier for us to use it. Um, that's just not mm. true. That's just absolutely not true. Um, you know, Ethereum has the same scaling problems as Bitcoin has potentially much worse because of some choices they made. Um, and and you, you have the system where you're trying to use, uh, you know, you're trying to use a web browser and you're affected by CryptoKitties on Ethereum. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would you be affected by things like that? It, it has nothing to do with the app. So, mm. so yeah. And when, and when you look how payments are made in something like Brave, and again, I, we're talking about Brave, but this is very common in many ICOs, right? So we... we you, yeah. you look at how payments are actually done in, in, in something like Brave, and you see that users have no idea what they're holding, what they're doing. So basically, Brave is managing everything for them. They don't even hold private keys, uh, I think. And publishers get paid directly to their Uphold account. Uh, Uphold is this um, sort of like an exchange where you give, um, you, you send your tokens over there and they give you like dollars or whatever. And they do it automatically. So, <coughs> so publishers, you know, they don't care about the token either. They want dollars. Um, so why don't you just hold dollars for your customers and give it, give them dollars? Or if you can't hold dollars yourself because you know regulations or whatever, then then let Uphold this company, this third party, hold dollars for you and just do the whole thing with with centralized dollars. Why not? I mean, that's the way everyone's using it anyway. So. Mm. Yeah, so that's why things like that seem like it's just a way to to take money out of the secondary market. I'm not sure how you know. I'm not sure if people at Brave and and in some other companies, you know, definitely understand that that's what they're doing. But but it is what they're doing. Yeah, I see. At the time, there was a bit of discussion that oh well, there's a need for international payments, and they they were doing a bit of this kind of fancy zero knowledge of the customers, but. It just—it strikes me that ultimately it's a centralized service, and that they could just architect their solution in a more centralized way. And then, look, the other thing is, let's say there are legitimate problems in terms of how you use a particular cryptocurrency. Should a startup who runs into these problems, should they, you know, should they then go back to the planning table and build another solution? Um. Yeah, so you know there there are a few ways to handle that, right? If you're trying to use Bitcoin and you 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 get to some problem, then you could say, hey, why not you know find a solution for that? Why not go work on Lightning first and help the efforts there, and then you know then go on to doing your business? Uh, I can see why that's not very realistic for some businesses, and I think it's fine. I mean, some some sure. will I see. Mean, it may not happen in time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they, they may not have the expertise and skills or interest or, you know, whatever to do any of that. So, yeah. and, and that's, I think that's perfectly fine. Um, but, you know, you, you kind of have, when you look, and, and again, I, you know, we were saying Brave, I don't want to, I, I don't want to come down too hard on Brave because it's really what everyone does. Um, but but you see these products, they're, they're kind of describing this product to you and then they make all the wrong or all the bad UX decisions for the users, right? They, they, they practically make it 
the worst experience it can be for their users. You have to go to this exchange and buy something and you have to have write down your seed and why? I mean, are you building a product for them? Are you building a browser or uh, what, what are you doing? So if, if you're really building a product, if that's what you're trying to do, if, you're, if you really believe that people should be paying publishers to, to not see advertisements or be compensated for, for, for seeing advertisements. So just do it, you know, do it in the best way possible for your customers, not in the best way possible to, to get a token started. Mm, yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I agree with you. It's a, it's not just brave. I mean, really, we're just talking in the general case where there's kind of this token uh, craze. Now, I think you've commented previously and c- contrasted with the tokens that are available in games such as Fortnite. So, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, one thing I've spent some time looking at is is this idea of what some people call tokenomics or crypto economics, um, which, you know, it's, it seems to go, it seems to be about the idea that you can um, encourage your users to take certain actions and do certain types of engagement. If you have, you know, if you, if you incentivize them with, with some sort of a token and it sounds like a good idea. Again, it's, there's a question of where the value actually comes from. If it's not actual real money, then why why do these tokens, why are they worth anything in the first place? And then we go back to how they're um, kind of subsidized by the secondary market. But even if you ignore that, I think it's an interesting idea, right? You can get people to do what you want. And then I looked at, you know, this is not really a new idea. You have this in sort of in-app virtual currencies which are mostly popular in games. And they've been popular in games for a long time, in mobile games, in in social games like Zynga early on on Facebook, and then mobile games and Fortnite today. Fortnite is huge. I think they're set to make uh, about $2 billion by the end of the year. which is in about a year, right? So that's huge, huge, and they're doing all of that by selling their endgame currency. Now they call it, I think, V bucks. So these V bucks, they're not, you know, the obviously they're not tokens, they're not tradable in any way. You can transfer, you cannot transfer them to any other player. Once you have them, you can only use them to buy virtual items in the game. Um, so. They're strictly, you know, they're strictly for buying stuff in the game, and and actually, you, they're not even, you know, you can't even, uh, you can't get any way to improve in your game by buying these items. They're just cosmetic. So there's this whole culture in Fortnite around um, people buying cool items and just looking cool in the game, right? Um, so <coughs> you have these, you know, you have these currencies and. People don't buy them because they think that they'll go up in value. They obviously will not. And they, they don't invest in them and they don't particularly care about them either. They care about the product that they're getting with spending this money. But Epic Games, which is the developer of Fortnite, they have this nice, you know, nice feature where they can sense it's basically just virtual items. They can give some of them away for free for certain actions. So, you know, 
lately they had this thing where they wanted to have all users enable two-factor authentication. So they said, look, go ahead, uh, enable two, 2FA and you'll get some free items. And that's like, when you think about it like this, this is very straightforward and very obvious, right? It's, it's, you know, you have this company, they do stuff, they sell it, and sometimes they give it for free to incentivize other stuff. That's very simple. Um, for some reason, reason in the blockchain space, it's like this very profound, very, you know, um, very interesting thought experience, uh, thought experiment where you can incentivize things with cryptocurrencies and suddenly it's, um, you know, it's very new. Um, and that's what they call crypto economics, which is, you know, I, 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 I think that this comparison between, you know, this is something that the gaming industry has been doing very well for years um, and something that the cryptocurrency industry is doing actually not very well, right? It's not actually working <laughs> too, 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 mm. too well. Um, and, and you have to ask why. And I think the reason why is that the, the you know, the gaming industry is building a real product. They're, they're really scratching an itch for their, for their gamers, for their customer base. Um, the, the customers don't care about the currency, they care about buying stuff. Uh, while in the cryptocurrency area, people really only care about the, 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 the currency or the token or whatever we call it. That's the only reason they're there. So, you know, they, they, they're not really getting any service out of it. They're just trying to have it appreciated in value. So that's a very big difference. And obviously it doesn't work in bear markets. It only works during, during uh, you know, during times of exponential growth. And we all know we can't have exponential growth forever. That's, you know, that should be mm. very obvious. So the whole model doesn't, just doesn't work. Yeah, great, great comments. I like the, I like the explanation around that. And it, it's almost, it's one way to say it is basically that these are just unnecessary app tokens. And, you know, and I like the way you contrast, you know, the Fortnite example where people don't care. They're not, it's not that these people are holding the private key for V-Bucks. They're not trying to trade V-Bucks. They are literally just using it to buy in-game products. And that's that's that, you know. Now, another yeah. area that I've seen you, you be very, um, a good observation, and I think it was very true, is that, you know, altcoiners are very good at calling out other altcoiners. And so one <laughs> yeah. example you gave, <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah, which is true. And you look at, say, Ripple. You look at the CEO of Ripple, Brad Garlinghouse. He was commenting, saying, oh, look, uh, look, some of these other projects, there's not a lot of successfully deployed solving a real problem or defining for a clearly defined person. What do you think about those comments? Yeah, so, so yeah, that's something, it's interesting, you know, since I started kind of speaking out about things like altcoins and shitcoins, um, I've actually had a lot of people you know, kind of come to me privately and just say, you know, a lot of times it's people that are involved in some projects and they, they kind of, you know, it's always the same thing. They always say something like, look, you're right. The, the industry doesn't look very well. And there are a lot of projects that are doing, you know, obviously scammy stuff and obviously um, just things that don't make sense. But, you know, not everyone is like that. You know, some, some of us are, are really trying to, to, do, to do good. Um, 
and you know they they usually then start trash talking about each other you sometimes have like a few conversations open with people unknowingly <laughs> trashing the other and and it's 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 really you know it's really interesting first i think that you know the i, I I don't think, you know, when people say we're trying to do good, I don't think this is about morals, right? This is a free market and people can do whatever they want uh, as long as it's legal. I'm not sure how much of what people are doing is legal, but as long as it's legal, they, they can do whatever they want. So uh, I'm, it's not about morals to me. Um, I think that a lot of people come with good intentions. And I also think that's one interesting thing is that you have, you know, this industry has like a few... Um, a few handfuls of of um, businesses that what they do is they they kind of run ICOs for you. So they look for companies that are maybe in bad shape or maybe young entrepreneurs are starting their first company, and they come to them with this idea of let's start a token. And they say, look, we'll, we'll take care of everything. You'll pay us like a million two dollars, and we'll we'll take care of everything for you. We'll do the white paper. We'll do the community management. We'll build the website for you. We'll do everything, and they raise the money for you. They take a big cut and they leave. And then you know you're, you 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 really did want to do something that you believe in, right? As an entrepreneur, definitely the the younger ones and you know the less experienced ones really want to do something meaningful. It's not that they're bad people and they mm, tried to raise funds right. from from you know from from VCs or whatever and didn't go very well. Or you know, or, or just ICOs are more attractive. I can I can sympathize with that, and <laughs> and then you're kind of stuck with this vision that someone else wrote down for your investors, and you have no idea how to do it. And you, you, many times you physically cannot do it. So so yeah, so that's that's a problem. I don't know if it's you know being a bad person per se. It's just um, it's just not very professional and it's not very responsible so um so that's a very common story in icos and but even the bigger ones like you know for example for this example it's ripple and, and others you basically you know you you build this notion of what you're doing and i think ripple is is you know they're they're very um they're, they're in the, the space for a long time right so they probably share this this view of looking at other coins from you know from another Sort of, sort of another place than others look at them. So, um, I, you know, I, I can see the, the 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 train of thought there, but <coughs> it's you know they're all so similar in their shortcomings, right? It's almost always the same thing. It's um, no one's actually using it. Um, we we don't know how people will use it. Mostly, what you're doing is just promoting to looking for new users and promoting to them, not users, new investors, sorry, and promoting to them. And that's it. So yeah, I, it's actually everyone pretty much doing the same. Yeah, it's a good point you raise that really it's a lot of these people have just taken the path of least resistance. So they want investors, they want funds, they want to raise money and they might've been denied on the traditional route. And then they, you know, for one reason or another, got pushed or you know went into went down that path of doing an ICO and raising funds in that way. So yeah. the next thing, and it's related to Ripple and other, you know, some of these more what we might call enterprise blockchain. Um, there are 
there's a dis- there's a distinction there because these are obviously they tend to be more like a federated permissioned ledger as opposed to bitcoin's open permissionless ledger um how do you sort of talk and think about the way a, a company that say wanted to use a blockchain you know this whole blockchain technology how should they do such a thing right so the the first question should be why why do you want to use blockchain? And I know that's not exactly what you're asking, but but it has to be asked because, um, mm. you know, it's people, people who, especially people who don't have a lot of experience with this. And and okay, let's be frank, no one has a lot of experience with blockchains. Very few people have a lot of experience mm. with blockchains. But even people who who have very little ex, uh, experience with blockchains. Um, they they usually think of it as as things that it's not like you know it's very fast or it's very uh, scalable or it's easy to use things that the you know blockchains are pretty much the opposite of that and so you have to ask why people who use I think most of the you know developers that I consider you know serious developers they they don't like developing for blockchains very much it's a pain it's not you know it's not fun um you sometimes get to work on challenging problems which is very satisfying but the it's not you know it's not a very fun process there are a lot of problems involved so you should want not to do it if you can right developers are expensive if you're gonna build a blockchain project you're gonna pay a lot of money for developers a lot so or you could get like traditional developers you know work on traditional systems and you're going to pay them a lot too but but you're going to pay a much more market-based price so <coughs> you know um you, you have to ask why you're doing it and the answer is almost always you know for um for generating hype <laughs> that's almost always the answer yeah um, if, if you're being true to yourself <laughs> but mm. you know let's 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 say you have this uh I don't know, let's say you have this use case that you really believe in like security tokens, right? Um, which, you know, I'm not sure about, but that's another thing. So let's say you want to do security tokens and you think that uh, it will work better for, for your partners if you can say the word blockchain, right? Because they'll get excited. So what do you do? Um, yeah, I think it's it's almost always better to use some sort of a federated solution. Um, Again, because you're just going to want to do the simplest thing you can do. You want to be as simple as you can be. Um, with Bitcoin, we kind of have this system that is, you know, kind of involved in the moving parts it has um, and in the economics and game theory of it. And we do that because we want something very specific. We want money that we can transfer in a way that can't be censored and can't be changed. So we don't want the monetary supply to be changed. And it's not that, you know, it's not guaranteed by the tech. It's guaranteed by the the community and the social aspect of Bitcoin. And the tech is there Mm. to help us to enforce the social rules that we decided on. So Bitcoin is the, 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 you know, the Bitcoin infrastructure is there to sort of automate the coordination process between all of the all of the community members of Bitcoin. The community members have to agree that we're only have we're only going to have 21 million Bitcoins. That the code can take care of that. It can check it for us, but it can't enforce it forever. 
the, the community has mm-hmm. to enforce it. So yeah, so so Bitcoin helps in in automating this instead of having every person checking every transaction manually. The Bitcoin software automates this process for us. In something like security tokens or some other centralized thing that you want to to use a blockchain for, um, you you don't care about these social rules because you're gonna have governments enforcing these rules. You don't need to have um, all of the inefficiencies. Um, that this coordination, this automatic coordination generates. You, you, you want something a lot simpler. Maybe you don't have to have everyone checking everything and you don't have to verify everything. And maybe, you know, maybe there are some steps that some people can take to make things easier. Um, and so federated blockchains make a lot of sense for, for things like that. I think that, you know, centralized databases make more sense, but let's, Let's say that federated blockchains do make sense for this. So, um, you know, you pick like one part of the federation will be some regulator and another one will be the company issuing the stocks and another one will be, I don't know, a few exchanges, whatever. You have to pick them very deliberately, but you can pick them somehow. And then, um, you know, they can take care of everything. And if something goes wrong, you can have a regulator stepping in and say, you know, seeing the entire history and saying, look, fix this and and that's fine and everyone will accept that because they have to so that's a very different thing from something like bitcoin so that's why i think people should adapt when when, when doing things like that mm, yeah that's a great explanation of the increased if inefficiencies that can come with blockchain and really the real reason why they blockchains are specifically used now related to what you were saying there has there was a shift in the language as well over the last few years. I recall when these things first came out in maybe 2014 or so, there was a lot of the term blockchain technology. But then what's happened is some of the companies have almost agree- admitted, they admitted and they've changed and they said, okay, actually what we're doing is something closer to distributed ledger technology. Or, and I think you, you might have commented earlier on the difference between, say, Corda and Ethereum, with Corda being more like a distributed trust minimized database. So can you just elaborate a little on that difference? Yeah, sure. So actually, Corda is an interesting story, I think, because, um, well, first of all, there's a lot of animosity in the Bitcoin uh, community um, towards Corda because of some political statements uh, involved in the earlier years. you know, Mike Hearn, which is a, uh, do I say infamous Bitcoin developer, you know, declared that Bitcoin is dead and went on to work for Corda. And this was kind of part of their PR machine. So there's like some bad blood there. Um, that being said, if you if looking at the technology itself, I think that um, Corda's technology is, um, in my eyes, superior to a lot of the other, other um you know, private blockchain stuff that we're hearing about. Um, what's different there is that first, it's not a blockchain. There are no blocks in Corda. Um, they realize that, you know, since you're going to have some permission actors that you're going to have to trust in a way, um, then you can go ahead go ahead and, and forget about the whole notion of blocks, which are basically used to combat um uh, the you know the networking delay it takes time for things to 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 propagate through the network. So 
you know, people. So if it's blocks, it's just going to be easier to to tag them. If Bitcoin didn't have blocks and just had transactions thrown around, and and each transaction would have to have its own proof of work, then you know you'd have to have like a, a much faster uh, propagation rate. You'd have to have instead of a block every ten minutes, you'd have to have a, a transaction every second or every subsecond, and that's just not that doesn't work very well in in a in a distributed network. But in Corda, you don't have to have transactions propagate to everyone. They try to only propagate them to people who care about them. And that simplifies a lot. So it's basically, instead of one chain of blocks, it's a lot of small chains of transactions where people only see the chains they need. Um, and that's just a better architecture. It's a better, you know, for something like that, when you don't have, you don't care about if, what everyone else is doing, it's just a better architecture couldn't work for Bitcoin, but it's it's fine for what they're doing. Yeah, I like that explanation. And I think you, it, there's that distinction there between the quarter, you know, system and Ethereum, which may bloat. Do you want to talk a little bit about blockchain bloat? Um, yeah, sure. So it's, of course, it's not a problem specific to Ethereum. It's a very big problem with Bitcoin too. Um, but I think that Ethereum kind of, doesn't try to optimize the the or minimize the bloat as Bitcoin does. Um, so basically, you know, the, the basic idea is that the basic problem is that you want to have everyone know everything in those systems. You need everyone involved to know what everyone else is doing all, at all at any time. And the reason you have to do that is because you have to know, you know, if when you get a Bitcoin transaction or an Ethereum transaction, you need to know that the person sending it to you can send it to you, you know, that he actually has them. And in order to know that he actually owns them, you need to go back and see who sent it to this guy, you know, and you have to go back basically to the beginning of, you know, all coins. And at some point you get to where this coin was mined. And you can think, okay, so that's enough. I can stop here, but actually not, because in order to know that the coin that was mined is valid, you know, that it was legally mined, you have to see that no other coins were mined in that block, right? You have to, you know, let's say, I, I, so you have to look at the whole entire block and see that no other coins were mined, because if they were, then the block is invalid and this miner is cheating. And it, you don't have to do it just for that one block. You have to do it for all blocks. You have to see that no more you know, no more Bitcoins are in mind in any block. So you, you basically, and, and, you know, there are other things you have to validate and you, you basically have to validate everything that happens everywhere all the time, just to know that a Bitcoin transaction you get is valid. And actually it's the only thing you care about when people, when we say that people should run full nodes for themselves, the reason isn't to, you know, support the network and propagate data or whatever. It's just so that you can be sure that when you're receiving a Bitcoin transaction, it's a legit value transaction. If you're just asking like uh, a centralized wallet service or a block explorer or whatever, if if the, the transaction is valid, then you're trusting them. And then, you know, what what did we do? You know, what would do, what did we gain by doing all that if you eventually have to trust someone? So if, if you're just getting a small transaction once in a while, maybe that's fine for you. Maybe that's a risk you're willing to take. Um, definitely, if you're a large business processing a lot of incoming transactions, you have to be sure that you're really, you know, that the real transaction that you're receiving. Otherwise, you know, the, the the API that you're using could 
the provider of the API that you're using could try to manipulate you into accepting unreal bitcoins. So, <coughs> so that's why we have to do this. And it, unfortunately, it means that that blockchains aren't very scalable because as you add mm. more people and as they transact more, it's just very hard to keep up doing this. And you, if you know, you might end up in a situation where a very small amount of people can afford to to validate everything. And so, in order to be sure that the transaction you're getting is real, you have to trust someone else, basically. And that's a very bad outcome. Um, right now, it's not the, the case. You know, right now we luckily can run Bitcoin nodes on Raspberry Pis, right? So that's great. Um, yeah, you cannot run. Yeah, you cannot do that with Ethereum, unfortunately. Um, and it's and it's getting worse there too. So that's that's you know that's what the entire block size debate and things like that. that that's what it's about. Uh, it also has some implications for miners. Uh, it's basically the same thing. If if you know if you need to have like very strong hardware and very good connectivity in order to you know in order to be part of the network, then it, it naturally means that bigger miners have an advantage because you know they they go to get all the data from within their. Uh, you know their area and they have stronger uh, stronger hardware because they can afford it and i'm not talking about mining hardware but but just cpu for processing the, the bitcoin chain and then you know larger ones can get a cutout smaller ones can get cut out which is for the centralized things yeah right yeah that's a good explanation okay um yeah i like that and i think what we can do now is change over to talking more about what you're working on these days with Bitcoin and you know even with Lightning as well. Um, so maybe tell us about what's some cool tech or software that you've recently used in relation to Lightning. Sure. So um, with Lightning, you know, first of all, Lightning is super exciting, <laughs> and it's yeah. it's also it's really fun to see how um, development really cut pace in the last year or so um basically since segwit got activated things got started moving much much faster and it's really great to see that um so you know um we're at the stage where basically people are still trying to uh, you know install their own lightning node on their own machines or raspberry Pis or whatever um, and fund it with some money and, and be part of this network and check out how routing works and check out the different lightning implementations, um, which is, you know, it's fun experimentation. Um, we also have like, we have a lot of wallets recently. There are a lot of people working on, you know, Android wallets, iOS wallets, um, desktop wallets. Um, all of them have like their own kind of unique properties. Some of them are for more advanced users. Some of them are for, uh, you know, for really big, for, absolute beginners the, there's this one that uh, Lightning Labs just released a few days ago an update to their own desktop app for Lightning which yeah um, I tried it out it's really really good it's um, it's like designed for for newcomers basically maybe even people who don't know much about Bitcoin itself and it just works really well you know you 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 start it up you have a very quick explanation on on typing you know on, on writing down your recovery phrase and then you just you know you're being told look deposit some bitcoins in here and basically you wait for confirmations and you're done you can start using it you don't have to worry about channels you don't have to know what channels are or know they exist you don't know you don't need to know anything you get this very simple 
app, very good looking app that you just say, you know, you, you send and, and you're done. It's very easy. It's, you know, it's a great experience. Uh, people, you know, used to talk a lot about, oh, this is going to be so difficult. We're going to need to manage channels and it's going to be a terrible experience for users. So no, this is how experience should look like. And it's really shaping up well. It's still only on testnet, but it's, uh, it's really shaping up well. Um, so that's, you know, that's on that part. For me personally, um, I, oh, and, and also before, before I talk about me personally, we also have, you know, those cool apps um, that people affectionately call uh, laps, lightning apps um, that just, you know, just do cool stuff like the, the Satoshi's place thing where you can send some money to, to place a pixel on a map and people are drawing things all over it and it's uh, a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, people come up with those crazy cool ideas and they had this uh, recurring hackathon in Berlin uh, from Fulmo. I think you interviewed them uh, a few. Episodes. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff uh, Gallus from Fulmo yeah. Lightning. Yeah, so they're working on like, you know, people attending these hackathons are, are working like on really fun, cool stuff. So that's, you know, it's really a lot of fun. Um, for me personally, um, I, I'm slightly less interested in the payment uh, use case because, I don't know, I, I have this theory that, you know, it's great that we have a way to do payments, um, but I'm not, I don't think it's going to be very popular that people pay with Bitcoin in the, let's say, next two to three years at least. Um, if I'm being, being optimistic, actually. So, you know, it's mm. just, yeah, for, for, you know, for, for people like me and you, sure, well, we're going to do it because it's fun and, and it's interesting. But, you know, for most people, they're, they're going to keep using their credit cards for the foreseeable future. So um, that's, you know, that's at least the way I think about it. Um, so I'm, I, and I know it's controversial, right? But I'm, I'm, more interested in other things you maybe can do with lightning so um one interesting thing is that this is i think our first real implementation of payment channels at all so payment channels is an idea that's quite old um you know satoshi talked about it early on and then a few people suggested some schemes for doing payment channels on bitcoin talk and I think it was implemented around 2014, if I'm not mistaken, in Bitcoin J, which was a Java Bitcoin library. Um, it turned out to be broken later. It, it wasn't perfectly secure. Um, but, you know, this is about the first time we have a real serious um, way to do payment channels at all. And it turns out that payment channels are just a more efficient way to move money in Bitcoin for any purpose, not just, you know, payments in a store. Um, it's just kind of solidifies a lot of best practices of how you would use Bitcoin, right? So, you know, if, if, if we're thinking about something like a store, which again is not, not necessarily the, the best example, but if we're thinking about something like a store, it would probably make sense to, for you if you go in every morning to buy some coffee it would probably eventually make sense for you to say, oh, you know, to the store owner, look, I'm, I'm going to send you like, I don't know, 20 bucks worth of Bitcoin now. And, you know, and I'm going to get some, you, you, you let me buy some coffees for the next few days without paying you because it's just more efficient um, and it's going to be easier for both of us. So 
that's but that's you know that's not very secure and requires trust right um it's definitely more efficient to use a payment channel payment channel solidifies this best practice of not doing a transaction for every little thing and it's in a bigger scale it's right for a lot of other things so if you have like two exchanges who regularly transfer money between each other to to settle some differences then it makes a lot of change a lot of sense to use a payment channel for that um in some cases, there, there are things to consider regarding hot wallet security versus cold wallet security. But in some cases, it makes a lot of sense. And definitely, you know, if you're a trader who is using an exchange very frequently, um, and you know, on the one hand, you want to take, you know, take advantage of some market opportunities, and on the other hand, you don't trust the exchange with your money, then a payment channel would make a lot of sense. You can just open a payment channel with your exchange and move money back and forth instantly when you need when you need to use it it can be at the exchange side and when you need to use it and when you don't need to use it on the exchange you can keep it on your side safely so <clears throat> that's like the kind of things that 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 you can do with payment channels that just make everything much simpler and more efficient that's you know how you would like things to work and actually if we go back like ancient history then you know things like mount gox actually had the system i think they called it um i don't remember how they called it they had this system where you could um you could sign up as a partner sort of and and mount gox would tell you about a transaction look we're we're sending you a transaction now and it's going to be registered on chain but you don't have to wait for confirmation because we're telling you it's legit and we're telling you that we're not going to double double spend it and you can trust us now, trusting Mt. Gox wasn't a very good idea, but but for other, <laughs> but but assuming you have this this party you trust, then this is you know a better practice. You know, if if you already know you trust this person, then you don't really have to to wait for confirmation. So, <clears throat> but you do have to trust someone for that, and we don't want to trust people. So um, so Lightning kind of solidifies this concept in a way that you don't have to trust the counterparty which is just you know it's just useful for so many things um so things that i've been playing around with uh you know i'm, I'm not necessarily ready to share everything about them yet but the, the the general concept is i think that you know payment channels are just in and of themselves um like this cool tool that we can do a lot with and um yeah it could be useful for things that are not just payments definitely you know things like paying in exchanges, things like, you know, getting maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, yeah, let's say exchanges for now. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think one example that it gets brought up nowadays is something like liquid. So you got lightning network for the small transactions and then liquid as that sort of federated side chain amongst the idea being that you know large exchanges and trading desks can move the Bitcoin around very quickly in that. So it, when you were talking about payment channels, were you thinking payment channels for small amounts or for large amounts? So, you know, for the, for the foreseeable close future, uh, it's, you know, for the short term, it should definitely be smaller amounts because, you know, the, the entire technology stack is still new and you, there are definitely bugs in there. Uh, so you shouldn't be risking a lot of money. Um, going forward, um, it really depends on the use case, depends on the infrastructure you put in place. Uh, I think it could be feasible to use, you know, higher amounts of, of money in there. Um, once we're talking like, you know, 
payment channels do have limitations, right? So let's say you are the best trader in the world and you just sent some money in a payment channel to BitMEX and opened a 100x position and, you know, you started, <laughs> you started with one Bitcoin and five minutes later you have 5,000 Bitcoins, right? So, um, so you're going to have a problem. The payment channel can't send you the money back. So, you know, if you're a, a high volume trader that or whatever other use case where there are, you know, big uh, differences between what's coming in and coming out, <coughs> um, then maybe payment channels aren't the best way to do that. And, and definitely, you know, yeah, payment channels are, are better for a small scale thing because uh, you, you kind of have this closed channel that has to, to always rebalance if, if, if things change too much. Um, for large networks, uh, a sidechain makes a lot of sense um, or a federated sidechain makes a lot of sense because it's easier to balance things off. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of tech that's coming down the line, is there anything that's really exciting for you? Um, you know, so the first, probably the first thing is is, is the Schnorr signatures, right? Um, it's still kind of a ways off. Um, I, I think sometimes people get the idea that they might get it like we might get it like this year or next year, and I'm not very optimistic about that. Um, but it's it's definitely going to open a lot of doors because um, you you can do a lot of stuff once you use Schnorr. First, you can get like immediate um, privacy benefits because you don't have to separate types of transactions as, as much as you have today. So for example, uh, in, in most cases, uh, a, a single signature transaction can look the same like um, a multi-signature transaction. So you already, you know, you increase your anonymity set there. Um, but also there, you know, further, further out, there are other cool stuff you can do like aggregating um, signatures together in a block, for example, or um, um, you could, you know, there are talks about things like Taproot and so on that maybe are even a little further out, but it also help a lot both with scale and with privacy because that's just another set of transactions you can make look the same. So, yeah. I think the most interesting things to me are privacy and fungibility related. Um, not so much scalability. The scalability was the buzzword of a few, maybe a year ago, but I, I don't think it's as interesting because scalability can be improved by using best practices that, you know, there are a lot of low hanging fruit we didn't get to yet. Um, but with privacy, I think, you know, I, I see privacy as the, um, sort of the next big threat to Bitcoin personally, that's the way I see it. Um, and, and I'm not sure it's entirely about privacy. Privacy itself is important, right? If, if, if you, you know, if someone sends me a small payment, they don't want me to know what their salary is, right? You're exposing too much information when you're sending payments, but even if you don't have any specific thing to hide, right? But, um, but it's not just privacy. It's also the idea of fungibility and the, the two usually goes to get, go together. So the, the problem is that you can say that there are types of coins. You know, you can say there are the type of coins that went through a dark market once. And there's a type of coins that went through um, unregulated exchanges once. And there is a type of coin that went through gambling uh, websites. 
and and you can kind of have different prices for them because maybe you know maybe regulators wouldn't allow you to to use coins that are that that were used to gambling once or maybe you would be required to prove that you didn't use them for gambling so <laughs> this can create like differing prices for different coins and and by the way this isn't entirely theoretical um people already pay today more for for freshly minted coins right so you you can reach out to a mining pool and you can pay them like i don't know five percent ten percent more to get a fresh coin that was just mined specifically because it has no history and some people value that they say maybe in the future it would be worth it to have a coin that was never you know never moved never used anywhere um so so there's already some price discrepancy and as you know i think that as regulators learn more about how bitcoin works we're going to see this more and more in, in various areas so i think we, we should be doing what we can to get fungibility back into bitcoin uh, as fast as we can otherwise uh, this must that might become a real problem mm, yeah yeah that's a fair point and, and i think the other thing that comes up with that is around the confidence that people will have in the 21 million you know cap you know because it's it's important to also maintain that so i can i can see where there might be a potential battle coming actually because you know for example with something like confidential transactions there might it might you know people in the community might sense that that is raising the risk of silent inflation beyond the 21 million and then it will be an interesting kind of battle there because there'll be some people on the side who really, really want to be sure that there's no more than 21 million. And then there'll be other people who want more fungibility. What do you think? Yeah, I think that this is something, uh, I think Jimmy Song recently talked about it, um, had a video up about this. Um, and I, so first of all, sure, I think that one of the things that the Bitcoin community cares about the most is to enforce the 21 million cap. That's like one of the first things people will tell you that it, that is uh, the the basic the basis of what Bitcoin is. So so yeah, that's definitely very important. Um, and the, there could be a problem when when you're hiding the values, if you have transactions that can hide the values, like with confidential transactions, for example, then this might become a problem. Um, there's, um, there's this term called uh, perfect binding uh, versus something else that's called perfect hi perfectly hiding. So yeah. what it means is that you can have this mathematical scheme or this cryptographic scheme where um, uh, which is perfectly binding, which means that no matter, you know, as long as you, as long as the, the, the as long as there are no bugs in the code, right, then the way the math works enforces no matter what, that there are no, there are never more coins than there should be. That's perfectly binding. Um, and the other option is perfectly hiding, which means that no matter what happens, even if, you know, uh, ECC, the elliptic, elliptic curve cryptography breaks, you know, if someone finds an optimization and breaks ECC, um, then even in that case, the transactions remain hidden, right? You can never say to someone, hey, you transferred like five Bitcoins here because 
no one can know ever, no matter what happens to the math. So you kind of have to choose. Mm. Do you want perfectly binding? And then the, the privacy could be risked if ECC is hacked or, or, uh, or uh, you know, um, if a solution of uh, an efficient solution is fine to SEC. So this, this is one option. The other option is you always hide, but not always bind. And I think that the proposals right now are, have the property, they're perfectly hiding and not perfectly binding, but we could have other proposals that do it the other way. So basically, you know, if, if you're afraid or concerned that, um, the math could be kind of, you know, someone can find uh, an efficient solution to, to ECC curves. So, you, you know, you can, you can be sure that the, the amount of Bitcoins would, wouldn't be over 21 million, but you might lose your privacy. And I think that for Bitcoin specifically, it's probably the better trade-off. Probably. I, I assume that's what the community would prefer. Um, I don't think we have any proposals like that right now, but that's, you know, it's not impossible. I think. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, thanks for explaining that. It's a good um, way to put it. Okay. Um, well, I think we're getting pretty much to the end of the hour. Do you have any last thoughts uh, or, or how about um, anything you want the listeners to come and find you at or projects that you're working on? Anything like that? Um, yeah. So best way to find me or reach out is, um, is on Twitter. Um, I, I won't try to... Uh, it's 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 Udi right? But I won't try to spell it. <laughs> we will have it on. <laughs> that's okay. I'll put a link. I'll put a link <laughs> for that, guys. Yeah. yeah. So that's the best way to reach out. And yeah, I hope you can, you will hear soon about some projects. Hopefully. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks very much, Udi. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion with Udi. I particularly enjoyed the discussion around unnecessary tokens and crypto economics. As usual, guys, if you enjoy the podcast, I'd really appreciate a good review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And otherwise, that's it from me. Thanks for listening. Speak to you guys next time.